Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Breaking Uneven podcast. We love to talk shop, uncover the beauty of failures, and play a few games. Today, we have with us Ahana Banerjee, the founder, CEO of Creo. After Imperial College London, she went from banking at HSBC Nomura and Morgan Stanley to co-founding ML automation platform to fellowships at entrepreneurial societies and are finally at present day. Um, I know we haven't covered it all, but I hope we've captured a good chunk of it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the, for the introduction. and I'm really, really excited to be here. Amazing. So to get started, we'll play a quick little game to understand more about Cleo. Cool. So this game is called the Twitter Pitch Challenge. And basically, Twitter is known for its 280 character limit on every tweet, which sometimes makes it difficult to convey all your thoughts. It takes about 20 seconds to speak 280 characters. And so we're going to transfer this challenge to you, which is to explain to us clear in 20 seconds. But it's not that easy. You also need to use one emoji and one hashtag in your tweet. Okay. Is everything clear? <laughs> I think so. I can I can have a go. You you might have to cut me off at, after the twenty second mark. Should I should I go? All right. So I'll just put on the stopwatch and the time starts now. All right. So clear phone emoji that helps people buy and track their hashtag skincare routines. We're a free app available all over the world, and we work with brands and retailers, providing them with insights into. Uh, if their products are really effective for consumers. Okay, awesome. You were just below 20 seconds. Okay. So you passed the challenge. What a strange <laughs> way to start things off. <laughs> no, but since you passed the challenge, you have unlocked the conversational part of the podcast, which okay. I'll hand over back to Janine for. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so before we get to Cleo, like just uh, let's talk about like your university experience. Um, so even I um, did my university in London at LSE and we get involved in like so many societies. But I love the fact that your university society contributions, fellowships are given as much importance as your banking roles and internships on your like LinkedIn page. So what do these societies and communities really mean to you? And what was your experience like? Yeah, I got involved in quite a few things while uh, at Imperial. So I think the society I spent most of my my time and energy on was RAG, which is raising and giving. Um, and that involves finding charity partners, organizing fundraising events, bringing people together. Um, and, and, and I absolutely loved that. So I was vice chair one year and then was chair the, the next year of that. And I think that was really a huge part of my experience. We also collaborated with other societies at, at the university. Um, and then aside from RAG, I was also part of the um, live music society. So I don't know if you can see my guitars in the background, but um, I am an avid guitarist and, and singer. So that, you know, a lot of my, my happy memories come from that. Um, and finally, I was also part of the eSports Society. Imperial, when I joined, had 11 League of Legends teams. I was on the 11th team, um, but nonetheless, I I really enjoy um, gaming and it was a great way to meet people. And, and it was nice that that kept going during the pandemic as well, because um, 
you know, you can do it from from home, unlike kind of the events that we were doing with RAG and um, and the, the the music performances. So I think all in all, it was it was just a great way first to meet people and and have fun, um, but also I think some of the skills you learn in a university society are so transferable after university, arguably more so than some of the things that you're learning in the lectures. I, I think back to RAG and the skills that I learned from, you know, running an event, hoping that people actually show up to, you know, reaching out to people, asking a favor, like, hey, we're doing this thing. Can you come along? It's it's not always super comfortable to do these things, but that was a great training ground where, you know, I, I could just test things. I could see, you know, what sorts of events attract people. How do I build the relationships with the charity partners? How do I select a charity? You know, there's there's actually so much work that goes into it. Um, and, and also it's something that, that I was passionate about. So in a way, in my job now as a founder, a lot of the skills that I was using in my societies are things that I use every single day. So, you know, the, the community part was certainly a huge part of it. And I'm still very close friends with a lot of people I worked with back then. Um, but, but even from a more practical careers perspective, it certainly wasn't time wasted. And I always encourage people, my brother's in his first year at uni at Durham and I, and I, as the overbearing big sister sort of was like, <laughs> sign up to this that society, get involved. And, and he's done a good job. Um, and, and I think it makes a huge difference to the university experience. No, I completely agree. I think, um, as you mentioned, a lot of the skills that I've learned throughout university was also coming from societies and a lot of things that I can apply nowadays also was, um, I guess, like cultivated at that point in life and outside of like the lecture room and outside of the classroom and outside of my degree as well. And I think overall, um, the experience of university that I was surprised alone when I came was that, that it was more to do with what was outside of the classroom. It was more to do with uh, things that you learn from experiences in London overall and not necessarily just at university. So mm -hmm. that was definitely, and I think you definitely did a really good job of like picking your societies and like your experiences. Cause I think the amount you've like put in your three years or less, you've covered almost everything. Like you've covered music, you've covered sport, you've co covered charity, you've covered banking. So like, how was it like, was it like, was it something that you were always interested in all of these things or did you put an active effort to try and get involved in all the different aspects of, um, either creativity and just work? I've always had quite a broad range of interests. So I, you know, I, I definitely stuck within my comfort zone. Um, as far as music goes, I, I had bands throughout high school. My, it, rather surprisingly, my, um, what are they called, superlatives? Like when I graduated high school, was actually most likely to become a rock star. And there's a picture oh, of me wow. holding <laughs> guitar. So you know, music's always been a really big part of my life. And that was something that I just, you know, it was kind of natural to continue. I wanted to find a band. Um, and I ended up actually my my bassist and, and other singer in our band was from my high school. So it was it was actually quite lucky that she went to Imperial as well. Um, and so it was quite easy to get going from day one. And I think, again, with esports, I, I played a lot more League of Legends than I should have um, in my last year of, of school. So now I got to do it as part of a team. And I could say that, you know, it was it was worthwhile because we were competing. Um, so, again, that was very much within my comfort zone. I think with with RAG, I 
the, the school that I went to, um, both international schools, I lived in Delhi and Singapore, both for two years before um, going to university. And these were international schools where there was a huge emphasis on service and engaging with the local communities. And so I think that part I'd already had instilled in me of, of being interested in kind of NGOs and organizations that, that were, you know, doing good things, essentially. Um, what I had no experience was with was with the events planning side of things with actually like rallying students together. That was all completely new to me. So I think a lot of the day to day operations in that society was completely new and I was was learning very much on the job. Um, but but at its core, I, I just picked things that were interesting to me. And I think that's very much been a theme throughout my my life. I've just tried things that seemed interesting to me and I haven't really pushed too much against something that, you know, if I don't enjoy it, then th there's no point forcing myself into something that I don't like. With the caveat being, I kind of did that with my degree in the end, but <laughs> aside from my degree, um, I tried to pick things that were interesting. And to my credit, I did love physics when I started my degree. It was only after I started that I got put off a little bit and then it became an uphill battle. Um, but no, I think you know, that there's so many great opportunities at university and it, it is the time to to just throw yourself into as many things as possible on the career side. I, as soon as I figured out that physics isn't what I wanted to do, um, I, I took full advantage of the fact that I was in London and there are companies that have events, internships, things like that. So I, I just, I wanted to learn and I was curious. And I think I just let that curiosity drive me to, to, to learn new things and kind of has, has steered my path to where I am today. So I totally get what you mean about the kind of alternate learnings you get while you're at university. In fact, um, I was I studied in London as well at the LSE with Janvi, and you know we were both part of so many different societies. And for the longest time, I didn't have any of that stuff on my LinkedIn. But as I spoke to people and those experiences came out, a lot of people told me that you should put those up because, like you know, those are the learnings that matter almost as much as anything work related. Um, and, you know, coming to one of the other things that's there on your LinkedIn is Quill, right, which was your first startup. Mm -hmm. And if you see today, right, we've got the likes of Fireflies AI, Auto AI, all of these that are like really becoming more and more popular every day, mm -hmm. which is kind of what Quill was, at least that's what we grasped from it. Um, so I wanted to know, why did your journey end with Quill in December 2020? Well, I think some of those competitors are a, a part of the reason um, for sure. You know, it's it's an interesting story. When I started working on Quill, um, it was the summer of 2020. COVID had just hit. And at this stage of my life slash career, I was between my third and fourth year of uni. I'd already actually worked in a very early stage startup um, in the student graduate recruitment space. And that had helped pinpoint for me that that's what I wanted to do eventually. But at the time, I didn't really see any path of getting there. I didn't know how to raise money. I didn't, I just didn't know how to go from zero to one at that stage. Um, but because of COVID, all of my fourth year societies, except for esports, and my mum wasn't too happy with me playing League of Legends all day, uh, were cancelled. So I thought, you know, I've got this free time. What can I do with it? Why not just start an idea if one day I want to do this and it doesn't matter I by then secured my grad jobs for after I was going to graduate so I was going in, into my fourth year in quite a strong position um and 
I tried to, you know, I spoke to a couple of investors. I went along to some talks about early stage startups and I came away with two lessons. The first was I should do something B2B because that's what founders do. And the second thing was I should pick a problem that I've experienced. And I think I took that at quite a surface level approach of trying to think, okay, what problems have I experienced, you know, which I could build a solution to that I could then sell to a business. Um, and I thought back to the banking internship I'd just finished. And the thing I hated most about it was the fact that I was taking meeting minutes all day. Um, and I thought, you know, it'd be really nice to automate this. And although there are now more and more players in the space, they're still not used that mainstream, you know, they're not used in big corporations. And so I thought, here's a problem. I can try and build a solution. Let's see where it goes. But that was about as much due diligence on the idea as I did. I did zero customer interviews. I didn't really do that much market research. I looked into what the existing players were. And the thing that made Quill slightly different from the existing players was the fact that we were more focused on the summarization aspect rather than just the speech to text aspect. And so the plan was to use an open source transcription engine and then our secret source was in the summarization. So actually turning that transcript into actionable meeting minutes. I think our, our one liner at the time, if I'd have had to do the 20 second exercise was Quill transcribes, summarizes and curates data insights from your meetings. Um, and so, so that, that was kind of the, the vision and the idea. But as I started working on Quill, um, a couple of problems became evident. And the first most overwhelming problem was the technical difficulties of working on a company like this. Text summarization is not a trivial technological pursuit. It's hard to do. And so what ended up happening was the first version of the product um, was trained on an open source speech to text engine which was trained on American accents, which meant for this to work, I had to put on a fake accent, which meant in my early user demos, I was you know, saying, hi, I'm Ahana, nice to meet you. I'd love to show you this thing, like, let's see if it works. And then the, the look of horror when I would switch into an American accent for no apparent reason, halfway through the meeting, I was also only targeting people in the US and the guys for it was that like, oh, it's a bigger market. The only reason was, <laughs> because it wouldn't transcribe correctly if you didn't have an American accent. That was the first issue. The second issue was, you know, we made this almost research paper on all of the different text summarization techniques that were at the forefront of, of the academic research at the time. In practice, the summarization algorithm was as follows. If your word ended in ing, so it was like broadly a verb, that sentence would get put on your action items. So let's say it was raining outside. It's raining outside would be on your to-do list. So the summarization also <laughs> wasn't great. Um, so, so there was sort of like the technical part of the challenge. The next part was actually the B2B sales process and specifically in this field, because I did no customer interviews at the, at the very beginning, I sort of went straight into building the product without testing things first. What I didn't realize is how difficult it would be for someone like me who hasn't worked in the type of target company to actually figure out who the decision makers are, like who is responsible for purchasing software like this. And with my network, can I even reach them? And the answer was no. I, I mean, I kind of could, but it was it was really difficult. And it meant that, you know, I 
for example, my Facebook inbox is almost unusable at this point because I have sent out so many cold messages on, you know, entrepreneur groups on, I think at the time I was looking at product manager groups. And so I was getting those meetings. We did end up getting a couple of pilots running, but it was really hard. It was not coming naturally. And the final point was, you know, this question of there's these incumbents in the market, there's Fireflies, there's Otter, they're doing really well. And then there's also the Googles, the the Microsofts who have massive data sets. And to answer the, the kind of stereotypical question of defensibility of, well, why can't Google just do this? The answer was, well, they can and they can do it a lot better than I can. And, and that was the fact of it. So I was getting incredibly nervous about taking Quill further, um, but I had started talking to investors and the biggest one being YC, which I'd applied to just a week into coming up with Quill, where I'd come up with the one line or I just told you, I'd come up with the name and the logo. And I didn't expect anything of it, to be very honest. I didn't really know what YC was. If I had, I probably wouldn't have applied with Quill a week into it. Um, and so at this point, I'd worked on Quill for, for a few months and I knew I had this upcoming YC interview and I'd applied with this idea that I wasn't very confident about. Um, but equally, I was still doing university at the time and I didn't like I didn't have time to work on two startups and university. So I decided, let's just see where it goes. Like clearly YC have maybe seen something in this. Let's just do the best I can in the interview and, and see what happens. Um, but I think, you know, that the, the thing that caused the end of that journey was after my YC interview, this, the, the very night of it, in fact, um, YC came back to me and kind of gave me a golden ticket and said, look, we like you, we don't like your idea, we want to talk to you again in a week, come up with something better. And that is really where Clear, my company now, was born. Um, but I think knowing all of my own insecurities about Quill at the time and then kind of hearing it from them as well that they believed in me as a founder but maybe not necessarily in me working on that idea and at the time I think they chalked it down to competition that there are too many players they've never really seen one take off and we were too early to know if you know ours is really that different from what's out there already um or better than what's out there already so so I think there are there are multiple factors that went into it and ultimately it was certainly the right decision to pivot but again so many lessons learned from that and the biggest one being that before writing any code or plunging into anything talk to users do user interviews and and that was something i led with when i started working on clear and it, it was definitely for the best that's amazing so the idea for clear was born out of <clears throat> desperation in the span of one week yep <laughs> i love that yeah that's a great so, okay so coming to clear i'm gonna ask you a very simple question but with a slight twist um, how did you come up with the name, but you have to answer in an, in an American accent? This is going to be offensive, I think, <laughs> and not, not, not the story, but the accent. Um, are you serious? I was am also going gonna... <laughs> to say that we need to hear the American accent. So yeah, this is the, this is a good one. Oh no. We'll put a disclaimer. We'll put a video disclaimer. Yeah, please, I, I don't mean to offend any communities by doing this, but all right, like if you insist, I guess I got to do it. So it's actually kind of a funny story. When I first came up with the idea for Clear, um, I didn't know what to call it because it was only like a week in that in that period where I had to come up with something. And my very close German friend told me that the word for skin in German is Haut. And I couldn't come up with anything better at the time. So actually our legal company name is Hout Technologies Inc. It still is. Um, 
and I just kind of went with it. The name was like the least important thing at the time. So I just like picked Hout and presented it as Hout. However, as YC went on and like I started talking about the idea, what became painfully obvious is that people could not pronounce Hout. They were saying ho, they were saying like hot. They just, they just couldn't say it. And we're a consumer company, so we need people to talk about our platform with each other. And if they're too scared to say the name, then that's a problem. So it was actually very dramatic. It was on the day of launch in June of 2021, where I'd already submitted the app to the App Store under Hout. And um, I just thought, like, I can't do this. Like, it's going to be so I'm like talking like I'm out of some kind of American drama, but like I couldn't do it. It was it wasn't going to work. And so I decided to, to use my LinkedIn connections at the time to run a couple of polls that day where I just came up with a couple of names. I think Dropper was one of them. Clear was one of them. Hout was still one of them. Um, and I just ran in the course of 24, hour, 24 hours a couple of polls on my LinkedIn. Um, and in the end, Clear was the top choice by the audience. It was just one of the names I'd picked. I think it was a much better name. The big downside to it is it's a much more common word. It makes things like showing up on the app store harder. It makes showing up on Google harder. And I was well aware of that, but I just decided to stick with it. And those were problems that if we built a really good product that became popular, that problem would be solved anyway. So, um, so yeah, it was really due to my LinkedIn um, community who voted in my polls and helped me decide on the name in a very dramatic 24 hours and then I changed the name to clear. Wow. It was so difficult for me to focus on your answer because I was just wowed by accent. I mean, you, it, I'm pretty sure no one will take offense. That is an absolutely brilliant American accent. Thank you. I mean, that's how we got the first couple of sales at Quill. It was through my convincing <laughs> American accent. No, amazing. And a great job, honestly. It was, I'm, I'm um, mortified that you made me do that. I really hope this never comes back to haunt me. <laughs> no, this wouldn't. Um, but no, it's interesting to see your journey with, like the start of your journey with Cleo. And um, like, as Anut said, that it was in a moment of desperation. And I think we recently had a conversation um, with someone else who also said that where desperation comes in innovation and that's when you start building something. Um, you also have mentioned that uh, you started Clio because uh, your own personal acne prompted the idea. Um, mm. So was the original idea, what actually, yeah, what was the original idea in that one week when you had to put, oh, had to pitch something to IC? What yeah. was it? Yeah, so it, Interestingly, it's not too different from what it is now. Um, this, the problem we're solving is still the same, which is it's hard to know which products to use and it's hard to know if your products are actually working. Are they even doing anything? Um, and at the time, it was more of a straightforward recommendations engine, more like an AI dermatologist where you would take a picture, it would analyze your face and it would tell you what to use. Um, and the reason that it's, it, it's not it's not just that anymore. I'd say that there's definitely an element to that where you still take pictures in the app, but it's more of a routine tracker. So you track your own routine that's built into a community where you can find other people with skin like you and see what they're using. The reason for, for not building it is just sort of a like two-dimensional interface where you take a picture, app recommends products was because upon doing user interviews, what we found is that 
especially as a new app on the market, people just wouldn't trust it. People actually want to understand why they're being told something. And especially in the skincare community, especially nowadays and with brands like, you know, The Ordinary and The Inky List, which is all around ingredients and transparency, skincare consumers want to know what they're using and they want to understand why. So if we have a completely opaque process of our fancy AI system is going to tell you what to use, consumers just won't build trust in it. And even me as a consumer, like there, there are apps on the market that, that do this now, but they're not very popular because on what basis are you being recommended something? I want to actually understand why I'm being recommended that product. And the second part to this was, well, how do we make this big to even get a good enough data set? to make good recommendations for people. There's there's no immediate value in the early days if the recommendations are bad. So how do we even get a big enough data set? And so it was really through conducting these interviews and also drawing upon my own experience from my own skin issues. I've suffered pretty much for the last 10 years and tried all sorts of things. You know, I've, tr- I've seen doctors, dermatologists, I've tried different medications, I've tried different diets. I've gone down the, you know, Indian Ayurvedic approach and put all sorts of spices on my face. And, you know, I've I've tried a lot of things for my skin. Um, And for me, online communities had been a huge part of that journey, mainly Reddit threads and Facebook groups. And so this is where I I ended up finding my first users. And this was a a huge distinction from what I was doing with Quill, where I didn't even know where I'd find my my users. Whereas with Clear, it it was obvious and it was a community I was already very much ingrained in. Um, And so when I started talking to people and trying to understand why they make the skincare decisions they do, you know, what is actually the driving factor behind someone researching a product and then ultimately purchasing it. And it came to community, it came to actually hearing about people with skin like them using a product. And the challenge with the existing platforms is that Facebook's not a skincare platform. So on a Facebook group, you can't filter people by, you know, oily, acne prone skin. So maybe there's two people in a skincare group, but if one person has dry, sensitive skin and I've got oily, acne prone skin, what works for them might not work for me. And therefore their recommendation probably won't be valid in the first place. So what we wanted to do with Clear was actually segment users by their skin type. We call them skin tags on the app. So you select what your skin concerns are, what your skin types are. And then that is used as the basis of connecting you with other people. And the incentive to begin with is the tracking element, which is something that many people already do because it is so hard to know if your products are working. Um, And we've got period tracking apps, we've got diet tracking apps, we've got exercise tracking apps, but people spend a lot of time and money on skincare, but there aren't really any good apps out there for it or or there there weren't at the time um, because I tried them. Um, so, you know, me and many of these people on these online groups had very extensive spreadsheets and like air tables with progress pictures, with like products we'd tried, with things that we wanted to try. And I thought, well, that's fairly simple to put into an app format, basically a diary of the products that you're using somewhere where you could see all your progress pictures in one place and then have that tied into a community where I can find other people with the same skin type concerns and go from there. And now, you know, we're, we're, we're just about two years in and we're at the point where the data set is actually good enough to make recommendations for other users. And we are doing some of those things that we wanted to from day one, but it's more in the context of social commerce as opposed to just sort of like an ML recommendations algorithm. That's interesting. I think, um, as you said, that skincare, like a lot of people put time and effort and money into it. 
and um even like for me like when I try and use different skincare it is sometimes I don't know whether it's making a difference I don't know whether it's placebo or I'm like okay like I'm putting this every day maybe it's like changing something um but I think what I've heard like throughout your journey so far is that community is at the core of it um whether it is actually in serving a community but also building with the community uh like even like your name you chose it with like your LinkedIn community and uh you're building it for this entire sense where people can resonate with a certain group of people so what what triggered that in the sense that how did you now like how did you gravitate towards like being building for a community and with a community like why was that so important to you or why do you think it's so important in business nowadays yeah I mean I, I think there's there's sort of like a personal answer and a more um objective answer and I think the objective one is that community is actually the most effective way to sell products so there's been a lot of research done um in this approach called direct to community so you know we all know d2c direct to consumer but actually, um, communities are much more powerful in terms of ending up in a purchasing decision in the first place and also retaining customers of a product or a service. So from a kind of objective numbers angle, community works as far as actually generating sales. It's far more effective than standard branded branded marketing or influencer marketing. But on a more personal note, you know, I never went into into clear saying that I'm I'm going to do a community. It was very much, I'm not going to make the same mistake that I did with Quill. I'm going to talk to people and figure out what they want. And it just came through the conversations when I was talking to people about, okay, why did you buy this product? My friend told me, or this person on this Reddit thread told me, or like my friend told me, or I have this one friend who tells me about skincare. You know, it was always other people. It was at the core of it. And that didn't surprise me at all, because when I look at the decisions I've made, it's exactly the same. It's someone that I've seen or someone that I know who's told me to use something. Community is at the center of the decision making process. So it was it was more of just listening to what people wanted and thinking, yeah, well, yeah, that that makes total sense. That's very much in line with my own experiences. This is what hundreds of people are telling me over and over and over. So this seems like the best way of actually building this product. And and it was only after I made that decision. And now that I've presented clear many times and, and looked into the research myself, and I wasn't surprised to see that communities are more effective at converting and retaining customers. Cause I was like, well, yeah, it, it again, it makes sense. It aligns with the research that I did independently and with, with my own experiences. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, there's two sides to it, but I think, in any business, it, the most important thing is to talk to your customers and figure out what they want. And in my in my field of skincare and, you know, why do people buy skincare? Community just is one of the largest drivers of that decision. So it, it only really made sense that that's what the platform was centered around. So, um, sorry, just one more question in regards to like what you were saying of talking to people and finding your customers before like from you I guess learned that like from Quill to Clear that talking to people was a key uh how did you a reach out to people but b also speak to people that were willing to speak to you about their problems or um how yeah like like 
how are you doing that also without like sharing what you were building because I feel like when it's early on it's difficult to like share your idea or like put it front in terms of like okay this is what I'm trying to build without Mm -hmm. it like I guess like you don't want to just like say it out loud before yeah time so yeah how is that process yeah it's um it, it is indeed a whole process of its own the way I went about it was I think best described as begging and pleading, which is something I've got very good at over the last two years. Um, so I started with people that were likely to talk to me. So people, but also importantly, people that weren't just family and friends. Of course, that's yeah. a good place to start. At the same time, they may not actually be your target customer. So it's important to maybe take what they're saying sometimes with a pinch of salt and try and think about where do people that I think will be interested in a skincare idea hangout and for me it was obvious it was these communities i'd spent every waking minute on on facebook and on reddit so it was putting out posts and dming people and there's there's nothing glamorous about it um and and as i I said earlier my facebook messenger you know apologies to all my friends who try and reach me that it's almost unusable because i used it so extensively for cold messaging people on these groups i was just finding people and just saying like you know, I'm really interested in skincare. I'm like, I have a software engineering background. I can build tech products and I'm thinking of building a skincare app. And I'd just love to talk to you about your skincare journey. And that was pretty much it. And I wouldn't say what my idea was, what, you know, what I found from my user interviews, I would just keep it as a conversation about their skincare. And for the very, very first conversations, it was more open-ended. Um, And I didn't come in with a concrete plan because I wanted to collect the insights first. So it would pretty much just be like, you know, when did you get into skincare? Why did you join this Facebook group? Like, how often do you repurchase products? Where do you buy products from? Pretty generic questions. Um, And then from there, I started understanding, like I started coming up with my own hypothesis of, okay, people want to understand why they're being recommended a product or people, you know, I have validated that people have a morning and evening skincare routine. Most people do it twice a day. So started gathering these insights. And then from there, I I put an initial idea forward of like, I think I'm going to build an app that does X, Y, Z. And then what I did, like it was, it was a very structured process, to be honest. I I looked at my idea of, at the time it was the AI recommendations algorithm. These are all the assumptions that go into this idea. So this, the success of this idea relies on people, um, not knowing what skincare products to use. It relies on the fact that people are happy to take pictures in an app. It relies on the fact that people trust AI recommendations. So I I came up with a list of all the assumptions that went into the idea. What I then did was I ranked them by um, how confident I was in the assumption versus how high of an impact the assumption was. So, you know, in other words, if the assumption I was super confident about, but was also like the crux of the business, that's pretty important. However, if I wasn't super confident about something and it was also a really important assumption to get right, that would sort of define the priority order. So the biggest one, I think at that point was people trust AI recommendations. That was the thing that I had the least confidence about that was like biggest impact because that was the entirety of the platform. Um, And so then I would, as I started doing more of these user interviews, I would center the questions around that question without asking them outright. I'm not gonna ask someone, do you trust AI recommendations, but rather get them to touch on real life experiences in their general decision-making flow. So, I mean, obviously in the context of skincare, but also, you know, how do you decide to like 
organize your calendar or how do you decide to pick out the outfits that you use and just try and get a sense for how this person makes decisions and types of scenarios in their life where AI might be making recommendations and whether they choose to take them or ignore them. You know, even when you're texting on your phone and there's the like autocomplete words, like, do you tap them or do you not? You know, all of these small, almost subconscious things to answer my question, do people trust this? And my answer after doing all of these user interviews was not entirely. Um, people people do, and especially now with ChatGPT, there's a lot more trust than there was two years ago, whether it's misplaced or not is another question. But, um, you know, that that was my answer. And that meant that I had to change what the idea was slightly, that just an AI recommendations tool wasn't going to be good enough. It's not actually going to satisfy what the users want. So then I kept, you know, tweaking the idea, iterating on this process of coming up with the assumptions, ranking them in severity order, and then doing user interviews to kind of get to the bottom of whether I was right in the assumption or wrong. Um, and then I did that until I wasn't learning anything new from these user interviews. And at that point, I thought that's it's time to start writing code. But that took three months. It wasn't an overnight process. And it was three months of just doing this. So I took it very, very seriously. But by doing those three months of work upfront meant that as soon as I started writing code, I knew exactly what I had to build. And obviously, it's an iterative process to improve the app and go from there. But you know, I think companies can spend years figuring out what it is they're trying to do and what they want to achieve, um, especially if you're in a new field, you're not doing a tried and tested model, which is, is the case for us. Um, I think that initial grunt work at the front really paid off as far as having a clear vision and understanding what the problems people in this community face are and how we can we can actually go about and solve solve those problems. <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, speaking of your experiences and then that led to YC funding and whatever, <clears throat> like your entire journey. Amongst all the experiences that you've had before, and we've already established there's been multiple types of them, which experience would you say helped help you most in YC telling you that we believe in you as a founder? I think, you know, it's more of an ongoing thing, but it, I think it was the way I was raised, to be very honest. It was the way my parents were at home. Um, I think I was always allowed to kind of speak back to my parents. Um, and, you know, it was small things like when my parents had friends over being allowed to talk with the grown-ups and like eat the same food as the adults and, you know, be expected to present myself properly and not just kind of hide away or like hide with the other kids. Um, all through, you know, then my teenage years of if there was something I disagreed with, I'd be allowed to at least ask the question. We wouldn't always end up agreeing, but I think it was the fact that I'd always felt heard. And, you know, my parents would always ask, you know, how was your day at school? What did you do? They were, they were very involved, but never once pushed me into, into anything. It was, and, you know, I also didn't give them a reason to push too hard against what I was doing. I made pretty good decisions for the most part, which most parents wouldn't be too worried about, but you know, they, they never said you must study X degree, you must pursue X career. They, they really left that up to me while being involved and, you know, providing their, their viewpoints on, on the decisions I made. So I think it was just kind of having this intrinsic confidence and, and security from, from that upbringing. And there were so many times where, you know, there were, there were confusing identity things. A big thing was when I moved to India when I was 14 and being of Indian origin, 
but not very cultured. It was a, a big sh shift going from the northwest of England, you know, the British countryside where we're the, we were the only brown family for miles on end to New Delhi, right? That's a huge, huge shift, especially as someone of Indian origin who can't speak Hindi, who like doesn't, who celebrates Christmas and nothing else. You know, it was a, it was a huge cultural shift as well. And I think, you know, going through these massively life-changing events and then, you know, leaving India, moving to Singapore, it's another entirely new country, very, very far away from what I consider to be home. Um, the, these are massive changes, but I think being able to have such an exciting childhood and see so many different cultures, but always have the grounding of, of home and family has been incredibly important. And even now, you know, I, I think with this job, there's many benefits, there's some downsides. And a downside is it's a lot of work, to be very frank. And it was only very recently that I, I took my first holiday in in years. And, and you know, it is, it, it's constant, it's on the weekends. If, you know, someone has a complaint about the app, I am still customer support, you know, it's, it's up to me to fix it. And, and it's, it's at all hours. So it's very, very all encompassing. But I think with any career, it's important to have the non-negotiables. And this was a lesson that um, I think in my, my like first spring week um, as an undergrad, someone told me and they were saying it about banking. And I think they were trying to like be like, this is intense. Like you should know what you're getting yourself into. So like make sure you know what's important to you. Um, and for me, what is incredibly important to me and what I <clears throat> what I'm not willing to sacrifice on is my relationship with my family. And that's something that, you know, to this day as a you know, good Indian child. I call my mum once, twice a day, but I do it because I want to. There's no compulsion. I just have that kind of very close relationship with my family. And, you know, for a long time, I viewed them as my, my co-founders. They know the ins and the outs of what's going on with Clear. They've helped me make so many decisions. They know me better than anyone else does. And, and, and they keep me very grounded as well because they're what's most important to me. So I think, I think really like I would not forget about like the entrepreneurial achievements i think any of the achievements i've had whether it was you know going to a good university pursuing a difficult degree getting any of the internships i did i think the fact that i was even able to apply for any of these things and have the confidence to is because of the way i was raised and because my my family have always believed in me i love that i absolutely love that i mean i i totally get what you mean because i've had kind of a similar upbringing and I've had, you know, I I call my ages from 15 to 19 my rebellious years because that was when I like really questioned everything my parents told me to do. And they would always answer every question. But yeah, it was, I totally get what you mean. Um, and I love the fact that, you know, the reason behind all of, I mean, practically the reason why you are where you are so personal as compared to, oh, I was able to do this at university or that university. Not to diminish that, that's a different kind of experience. But since we've gotten so personal, um, let's go to the next part of the podcast, which is called Two Lies, One Truth. And basically to understand a little more about your journey, we play this game. And whether it's challenges or big achievements, whether it's clear or personal, you have to give us two statements that are false and one statement that's true, that's the truth. And then we'll take it upon ourselves to guess the correct one. Oh, this is tough. Um, yeah, take your time. Think about it. Okay, I'm ready. So the three statements are, and it's it's two it's two lies and one truth, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I am a national level chess player, is the first. The second is I was a professional horse rider as a child. And the third is I was a professional gymnast as a child. Um, interesting. I feel like John is looking into my soul, trying to see me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of all the um, activities you mentioned you were already involved in and what goes the closest to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe a chess, the national level chess. Well, that's my aunt. I don't know. Anush, what do you think is the truth? I was going to say chess as well, but just for difference's sake, I would say horse rider. But no, wait, no, you're in Oxford. That's highly plausible. Ugh. Okay, I'm just, I'm going to go for horse rider. You're both wrong. I was a gymnast as a child. Uh... <laughs> I'm absolutely, I don't even know the rules of chess. And I think I sat on a horse once at a farm when I was like two. <laughs> Oh, so you really tricked us in this one. I did. I'm proud of myself. Maybe I could become a <laughs> poker player. <laughs> but um, yeah, moving on to our next game. It's called Red Flags. Uh, we're going to give you three hypothetical situations composed of two things that are going uh, great and one thing that's not going too great, which is the red flag. Um, mm -hmm. We've adapted these situations for you and Cleo. And you have to pick which uh, of the which situation you would rather be in, and tell us why that would be your pick. Um, so situation one is that Cleo has ten million downloads on the App Store. Cleo's skin influencers are growing daily and loving the app, but there is a data leak across Cleo's entire database. Situation two. Clear's new auto tracker is allowing people to reach 200 days of routine tracking. You're all geared up for your next round of funding, but Clear's rating across app stores start to drop and you don't know why. Situation three, Clear has uh, grown to more than 1,000 brand partners. Uh, the 60 second skin type challenge goes viral on social media. But you, uh, you by mistake make a politically wrong statement about beauty during one of your talks. So these are the three situations. Oh, I like this. Thank you for for tailoring it so much. Um, <laughs> I think, I think the situation I would most like to be in is situation three, just because I think at the core of of why I want to be a a founder is like I want to build a product that helps people and does something positive and I think in both of the first two situations although I would love to have 10 million downloads a data leak is pretty bad and that affects the very people we're trying to help um and that's not great the second is again like really good you know retention is something that's amazing for us and it and the more people track their routines the better the recommendations and insights get um but if the rating starts to drop that signals that something is wrong with the app which is like a fundamental business problem like if people don't like the product then that's something like something's gone really wrong with the third situation um 
you know, hopefully I don't get cancelled from my American accent in this podcast. <laughs> I think like, you know, it's it's difficult in this day and age where, you know, people do talk openly about their opinions and, you know, with cancel culture, it's very easy to, <laughs> to get negative back, backlash. But the worst that could happen is it would just be on me, but it wouldn't necessarily affect like it may affect the app and people might not want to download it but fundamentally if we're still helping a problem for people and we're solving a problem that exists if i make a dumb statement or a politically incorrect statement about beauty in a talk then i think that's the type of thing that could like d disappear with time and doesn't point to a fundamental business problem um, and it would just be like me tanking it, you know, with the others, it's like the whole team would get sent into chaos, trying to figure out what's happened or what to do. Whereas with this, it's kind of just like, it's on me to be more careful in the future. So I'd, I'd go for situation three. Nice. Yeah. No, I, I like how you, um, split it between yourself and, uh, the fundamentals of your business and as you mentioned a lot of what the founder says and does also reflects on the business but in the grander scheme of things the more important thing is like your customers and we love playing this game also to see like that thought process behind what founders choose because in it's inevitable to not have any like red flag per se but yeah. um it's nice how like it's nice for us to see how a founder navigates through that entire process so yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a fun game. <laughs> Makes you really think about, you know, which trade-offs you're okay with and which you're not okay with. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so now I think we've, we've done a lot of thinking. Let's get to the part where there's no thinking. So this is a rapid fire mm -hmm. and pretty self-explanatory. You have three seconds to give like one to three word answers mm -hmm. and let's start. So did you ever question whether clear was worth it? No. What was your proudest moment with Clear? I think the first piece of user feedback where someone like genuinely felt it was a really good community. Okay. What was one time you felt like you let Clear down? Mm, interestingly, I think when I closed the first funding round, even though I ended up raising around a million USD, it wasn't as much as people around me were raising or as much as I'd initially set out to. So I look back on it as silly to be um, upset and it was more than enough money that we needed. But, but at the time, I think <laughs> I wasn't in the right headspace. Okay. What are three skincare products you have used today? You're going to have to download clear and look at my routine to find <laughs> out. I love that. Uh, if you had to bring on a co-founder, who would it be? Probably my mum. She basically is the community brand, you know, community ambassador at the moment um, and is also our QA tester. She's the first person to spot and report bugs when they go out to production. Um, I probably, yeah, I genuinely say mum. And she's got great skin, unlike me. So she's, she is a great ambassador. <laughs> Amazing. Um, what is the scrappiest thing you've done to build Clear? Probably the, well, I guess... This was Quill, but the American accent, I think, was pretty <laughs> scrappy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, with Clear, so so many things, like from the begging and pleading to do the user interviews to like, we did um, a photo shoot for our website on the 60 second skin challenge where you can see me like dabbing my face. The setup, like the camera setup was a joke. It was like a broom with like a hanger balanced on it to get the bird's eye shot. It was, it was quite comical. <laughs> um, would you ever retire? I don't know. I think we're all too young for that question. <laughs> Do you, would you choose books or pod, podcasts? Podcasts. Would you choose an iPad or a notebook? A notebook. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Night, 100%. And I feel like I know the answer to this, but what's your favorite social media? You tell me what, your favorite, what you think my answer will be. I'm so curious. LinkedIn? I mean, so we've had people think LinkedIn is a social media, so I would say LinkedIn. Yeah, you're, 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 you're right. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't be embarrassed, but I am like a LinkedIn lover through and through. Obviously, well, there's no reason to be embarrassed. I think it's clear, absolutely clear is, amazing. If you, if you can't clear as a social media, then it's clear, but mainstream will go down <laughs> Cool. So that concludes the rapid fire segment, almost bringing us to the end of our conversation. But before you go, we ask every guest of ours to ask the next guest a question. And so we're going to ask you your question from the previous guest, and then you can ask a question to our next guest. Mm -hmm. okay. cool. So your question is, what is the importance of uh, failure in your journey today? And not how many times you've failed, just how failure has shaped you as a person. Oh, I mean, it's, it's one of the most important parts of, of the journey. I think at every single stage, there has been failure on all sorts of, of levels from, you know, my degree to not doing as well as I, I thought I would, which pushed me into figuring out other career paths all the way through to, you know, trying for a hundred internships every year and I'd get one, which is good enough, right? That's what makes it to the LinkedIn. But, you know, it was that lesson in resilience and being told no over and over and over. I think after a point you get so much failure and rejection that if you, if you take it badly, like you, you can't continue, it's too soul crushing to keep going. So the way that I, I view it now is it's a sign that I've pushed myself out of my comfort zone. And that's a choice. Like I, there's a conscious decision to not push yourself and coast along, which is fine. No decision is better than the other. It's, it's purely a personal choice. For me, I want to experience a lot of things. I want to grow personally. And to do that, I know I have to push myself. So if I'm pushing myself to the point that I'm failing at certain things, then, it, then it's, a, it's a sign that I'm on the right track. And I look at all of the big achievements in my life and you know from getting into yc if i didn't apply and get rejected from pretty much every other accelerator including my own university's accelerators like i wouldn't have been able to start the company at this stage or you know if i didn't reach out to like 500 people to do these user interviews yeah some of them said no some of them didn't want to talk but the ones that did have allowed me to build a product and get to where we are today so i think like it's failure is is absolutely just a sign that you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and then it's up to you to decide whether that's what you want for your life or not i love that i think more and more people are becoming okay with like rejection and failure especially with like social media and stuff you mm -hmm. know being kind of hated on here and there randomly. and it is important i mean i think jamina both been to the 
you know, 50, 100 applications get one kind of this thing. And it really just prepares you so much more for life. Like, then you're just like, okay, cool. If you reject me, that's fine. I'll just move on. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just that mindset that's super important. Mm-hmm. Go for it, Jami. Yeah, I was going to say that the internship thing, like applying for 100 and getting one really hit. Because like, as he mentioned, like we've both gone through that. But I think, again, like throughout our conversation, at the beginning, we mentioned that um, it's about the learnings beyond the classroom, right? And that was one of the biggest learnings for me. Like to understand uh, how to get out of, like how to, like how to deal with rejection and how to uh, grow from that. Because I think when you're young and university and things like that, it doesn't come as often. Or at least to me, I was lucky enough where I wasn't rejected that much to that degree um, yeah. at the, before that age. And it was, um, yeah, you take a lot of it personally at first, but now at this point it's so like it doesn't make a dent to like anything because you're so like used to it that you learn how to like bounce back and grow so much but mm-hmm. um no like I agree with you in terms of like rejection overall and just um how failure is sometimes the key to like a lot of things I think like throughout our conversation there's so much more like it's been an absolute pleasure but I think we could ask you so many more things to learn from your journey whether it's like being a single founder or like um even like your entire journey at yc we didn't even get a like touch on that so um, hopefully we can have you back at some point but truly like it's interesting to see how you've built clear so far thank you i have to brush up on my american accent before the <laughs> next one <laughs> that time we can have the entire episode in your american <laughs> accent <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, yeah. it was so lovely so having you on i think yeah, it was an absolutely insight-packed episode. And, and we'll definitely bring you on board again. There's still a lot to uncover. Thank you. I really appreciate you both taking the time to chat. And thank you for, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think it was, I enjoyed the games that you guys prepared ahead of time. So, yeah, just really, really appreciate it. Thank you.